Okay. Today, my guest is Professor Pasha Mahmoud. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with him. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Pasha as a person. Professor Mahmoud is a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally, as a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of his accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Ishtiaq Pasha Mahmoud is the department head and SMP professor at NUS. His research is on emerging markets, MNCs, business groups, and frugal innovation. He's a member of the Asian Service Business Research Institute. He has published extensively in pretty much all our top journals. He received the Haynes Prize from the AIB, the Aspen Faculty Pioneer Award, and the Temple AIB Best Paper Award, uh, among others. Pasha sits on the faculty advisory boards of the Avian Group and the Sony Reverse Innovation Community. Thank you, Pasha, for joining us. Thank you. Uh, first question, uh, as a child, did you always want to be a professor? I, I didn't want to be a professor. Uh, actually, I don't, I think most children want to do something different. They don't want to be a professor. They don't want to be teachers in most cases, but there are exceptions. Actually, I grew up um, in the early 70s. This was right after the war happened in Bangladesh, the War of Liberation. About 3 million people died. And uh, in, in that context, I grew up thinking, when I grow up, I will be also like a freedom fighter. So I thought about Mustafa Kemal, Sheikh Mujib, or people like that. So I wanted to be a uh, freedom fighter of sorts. But as I got older, I watched a TV show called The Paper Chase. It's about uh, some Harvard Law School students. And I thought, hey, a law is good. Uh, I could remember things. Maybe I would be a lawyer. So I wanted to be a lawyer, but I didn't want to be a professor especially because my parents and grandparents were professors. So I wanted to do something different from the, what they did. What was the earliest moment of awareness between foreign versus domestic? Can you remember uh, the international tricky, aspect? Tricky, tricky question, because uh, as I was telling you, my, my, my father was a historian and uh, my mother was a professor of literature. So when I was growing up, my mother was still she had me when she was 20 and you know she was going through her master's phd with me and she would tell me stories of hamlet uh, stories of uh, and my father would talk tell me stories about mustafa kemal or saladin or whoever so i didn't grow up thinking that these are different from me hamlet i'm sure he would look very different from me but i didn't think that he was very different so in my household, the difference between local, foreign was porous. But I remember as I grew, I was, I was about to be a teenager. I understood the difference between fashionable sneakers, which were imported, and the ones that we had at home. So because my parents were sometimes going to uh, these conferences, I would put my feet uh, on, on a piece of a white sheet of paper and then draw with pencil the, the, the contours. <laughs> and give it to them and say, can you please get me some nice sneakers? Probably that's the first time I realized that it's something outside, they have better things. How did you choose? I mean, obviously your parents are going to be influential, um, even if you don't notice it or realize it, but how did you choose academia and particularly international business? 
uh, as a research area. Yeah, as I was telling, I didn't really want to be an academic. Uh, I wanted to do something more active. Uh, so I, I wanted to, I wanted to, in a way, change the world. Sounds sounds strange, but uh, in a, in a, in a not, not through changing people's mind, by actually doing something. So I wanted to be first uh, uh, some kind of revolutionary, but then I realized it's not really, uh, I didn't really want to be a revolutionary either because I like coffee and I like cappuccino and all these things. <laughs> so then, then, then I thought maybe I'll be a business person. So I, my first job was a consultant right after college. I went to a very liberal college in Ohio called Oberlin. And after Oberlin, I went to consulting in Chicago, working for a big consulting firm. I thought my life was all set, but then I really didn't like that. I didn't like that because there was certain uh, entitlement that I saw around me. I didn't feel that it was against what my parents taught me, my grandparents taught me. So I felt I don't really want to be in an environment like that. So at that time, there was a, I had a, my advisor later, Professor F.M. Scherer. He's an I.O. professor, actually almost like a father to me. He's nine years old now. Sent a letter to my college that they're looking for a PhD student. And I thought, if I go for a PhD program for next four years, I don't need to think about what I would do afterwards. So I didn't, my coming to PhD was almost like, in a way, escaping from reality. And that's how I ended in uh, academia. But I knew, I knew I was a good student because I had been by then. So I knew I could survive, but I didn't understand how difficult it could be. So very soon I realized it was quite difficult to do well. But then I did kind of, uh, eventually I, I was okay. I was doing uh, comparative development in economics uh, with IOS actually. And I was not interested in, well, I did not know what exactly business was, but towards the end of my PhD program, I, I met Turun Khanna and he was working on business groups in the Harvard Business School. And slowly I was interested in coming to IB. So my, and then I came to a, a department in National University of Singapore, which is a strategy department in the business school. And that's how I, I slowly started trying to publish in the business journal. So it was not planned. It was basically a very organic way. Emergent strategies. <laughs> okay. No strategy, it just happened. Um, so something that is not on your CV that people might find interesting about you. Hmm. Actually, I love literature and I like good movies. I like, um, yeah, I like literature. I like movies. I like historical literature. Somehow I'm very inspired by them. Uh, like what? Actually, I, I, I'm uh, right now. I'm. Uh, I was watching very recently. I was watching this uh, Turkish TV drama called Yunus Emre. And, uh, Yunus Emre was a Sufi. He, uh, I think, it's about uh, 13th century. And uh, I would, and I have a very corny, very corny. Please forgive me. Very corny way of defining what is good, what is not good. And my literature professor mother would have hated me for that. My corny way of deciding is if it makes my soul bigger, if it makes me a better person, it is good. 
Now, how do we know what is good? That's a difficult question. But after watching this, I did feel that I became a better person. So that was one. I also read uh, literature, literature, historical uh, novels, for example. Um, I, I, one of my favorite books is uh, by Amin Malouf. It's called uh, Leo Africanus. Uh, it's about uh, this guy who was born as Hassan al-Wazan in about the tail, tail end of uh, uh, the, the Emirate of Granada. And about 1492, when Granada fell, he, went to, he was uh, ex expelled to, with his family to Fez, where he grew up as a uh, professor of jurisprudence. Eventually, he would be brought back to uh, Rome, where he would uh, teach uh, Europeans about Sub-Saharan Africa. If you Google it, its name is Leo Africanus. He would be baptized, and he would be there for 10 years, because he was brought there as a, as a uh, captive. He was kidnapped by Sicilian corsairs, pirates. Eventually, he would go back. So this is a fantastic book. Or there's another book that I, 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 I was reading. It's called The Children of Segu. So Segu is in the Malian capital, uh, around Mali, not Malian capital, it's around Mali, Niger, that area. And in the 18th century, it faced a, a fight for cultural identity. From the north, you have the Tijanias, the, 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 the influence of Islam. From the uh, southwest, uh, you have the um, Catholics from St. Louis, French coming in, and they just wanted to remain who they are. How do you you know, that these uh, navigate to these cultural experiences. So I love history and I love literature. So besides reading uh, and thinking about this, do you, do you write? Do you write uh, in this style? No, I, I, when I was a lot younger, I, I wanted to, I wanted to, I tried writing poems, uh, but somehow my inspiration didn't last. <laughs> so uh, recently I, I, I tried writing maybe once in a while, I write two, two liners, two liners, two liners. So I write poems once in a while. Uh, is this the source of your interest in emerging markets and the style of your uh, re research? Is it influenced by uh, all these historical and literature, literary certainly, works? Certainly, certainly. I think uh, what happened was over time, I mean, I, I realized that I know a lot less about emerging markets, although I was from Bangladesh. I, loved, I knew a lot less about, I am from Bangladesh, I am a Bangladeshi citizen. Uh, although uh, I, I grew up there until I was 18, I realized I knew, I mean, I didn't know much, but whatever I knew, a lot more was about Europe, America, but I knew very little about Africa. I knew very little about Latin America. So after I went to college uh, in the US, I decided maybe I should invest more time learning about places I don't know. So the more I started learning about Middle East, the more I started learning about Africa, Latin America, I thought, wow, this is kind of fascinating. This is how I started moving the emerging markets in my uh, unconscious perhaps. Uh, and that's how probably my research is. Any regrets in life? How could one does not have regrets? We, if we had chance, we would go back and do many things better. Um, you know, uh, I, when I left Bangladesh, I thought after four years, I would be coming back. Four years became, then I thought, okay, I'm going to work for two, three years. Then, it, then I, maybe I'm going to finish my PhD. 
Then, oh, maybe after, so four years, now it became 33 years. So one thing I feel like if things don't automatically happen, certain things automatically happen, certain things you have to, it doesn't happen automatically. So I wish I, I went back earlier. Now it's too late in many ways, perhaps, maybe not. Uh, actually, sometimes God knows more than what we do. Uh, but having said that, I also feel I didn't really utilize my PhD program very well. I went to an interdisciplinary PhD program, and I had a very romantic notion of what a PhD should be. I wanted to think, think to actually find answers. And the people around me, that's what they wanted. They encouraged me. So I didn't learn the tools of the trade that you need to publish. I had to learn these things as we move, as I started my career. So I was, in some sense, there was a trade-off in the way I was trained uh, by, my, by my parents and later by my teachers in graduate schools. They asked me to ask questions, try to find answers, but not write. So writing is a skill. So I think I, I it probably I would, it would have been better. I made a little bit uh, more balanced uh, training in that sense, maybe. But I'm happy that I got what I got. What are you most proud of? Proud, again, is a very difficult thing, but I'm very glad to, because, you know, every religion tells us not to, to, be, not to have pride. But having said that, I feel after 30, 31 years outside the country, my mother could spend the last two years of her life with me in Singapore. Uh, the fact that I could be there for her was a great, uh, I was deeply fortunate that I was given this opportunity, despite the fact that I was not with her for the 31 years, last 31 years, but for the last two years of her life, she was with me uh, going to her um, medical treatment in Singapore. So it wasn't easy, but I, I am deeply honored. Not honored is not the right word. I'm actually greatly, how could I say it? I feel deeply fortunate that I was given this opportunity. Thank you. <clears throat> About research, um, for the sake of time, I want to get to the research segment. How do you explain and describe your research to people who don't read uh, our journals, uh, later sure. on the street? Sure. So uh, how do I explain my research? Uh, you know, we all talk, talk about strategy. Strategy is about probably how to, how, to, how to change the way things are moving. You know, if things are moving the way we like it to be, we don't need a strategy. We have a plan. It's going to take us where we want to be. So the first thing is strategy is about making changes for the better. And what we do are basically strategic actions. And I want to understand about the relationship between strategy and performance. It could be innovation. How does it matter whether it happened to be in Sub-Saharan Africa versus Bangladesh versus Turkey versus the US? If we have, if we, we live in the same world, right? So if we live in the same country in some cases, we don't talk about strategy in same country strategy from, I don't know, uh, in uh, let's say, uh, maybe the strategy in Washington, uh, D.C. would be different from strategy in Cleveland, Ohio. Maybe strategy in Cleveland, Ohio would be very different from strategy in, uh, in, in Anchorage, Alaska. So if they're all the same, we wouldn't be talking about it. But perhaps there are differences. So I want to understand how 
what we do and how it affects our performance from the firm's point of view. How does it vary depending on which part of the globe you happen to be? So that's that's what I do. Uh, Pasha, about creativity in scholarship and uh, the way that you come up with uh, the paper ideas. Uh, <clears throat> how does yeah, the process right. work for you? To, to, to me, what is creativity in strategy or in research? It's, it's, a, it's a good question, actually, because um, actually, I, if I knew, I would be more creative, honestly speaking. But, but I'll just tell you what I, when I see, I feel in first, the first issue, I'll give you in terms of priority-wise from me. To me, the most important thing is the question one asks. And who decides whether the question is interesting or not is me. Now, if I can't even justify my question why I should care, it doesn't matter if others think it is interesting or not. So to me, an interesting question would be, so everything starts with the question. So I would think that's most important. And creative question, I don't even know what is creative question, but an interesting question is the first step. Like right now, I'm curious to understand we talked a lot about how, let's say, constraints like censorship destroys creativity. But you know, if you look at the history of Iranian movie, Iranian movies became so famous in the post-Iranian revolution time when you couldn't have movies about sex, drug, and rock and roll. That's when people had to focus on parameters of basic human uh, interactions. And that's, if you look at this from early 90s onward, Iranian movies like uh, Children of Children of Heaven, uh, you know, all these movies uh, became extremely famous. So I, I very good. So if you look at also the history when uh, the the Muslim injunction about drawing people's faces, how it led to geometric uh, things. So sometimes we talk about frugal innovation, you say, which is about reducing resources because we don't have resources in countries like mine. How do we actually get the maximum out of it? So to me, under what context constraints can lead to innovation is something that I'm fascinated by. To me, that's a question. The problem that I face is the kind of data that we need to do to actually empirically test them. But you might ask, why do we need to test everything? Actually, that's a different question. We may, I want to answer later. We talk about data. Probably we don't need to test many things. Uh, but if we want to do it, the question is, how do they measure things? Like right now, I'm working uh, on a paper looking at corruption. Now, how do you measure corruption? It's not so easy. So the, the way I measure corruption in that particular paper is uh, at the level of the province. And I measure corruption by looking at the share of bad roads in a province. Now, you know, we all know that construction industry is one of the most corrupt industries, regardless of whether you happen to be in Naples or in Boston or in Bangladesh. Now, how do you, but you know, the roads become bad, not just because you have corruption that people use poor quality materials. They become bad because of rain, because of heavy traffic, because of lack of civil engineers. So all of these reasons. So how do you actually parse out all these things and focus on um, corruption? It was not easy. So I'm kind of proud. Doesn't mean it is a good job. I'm kind of proud the way I look at corruption in that way is almost like the way economists look at total factor productivity, which is 
from the output, you take out the impact of capital and labor, what is left over is total factor productivity. So in my measure of corruption for a province, I look at what should have been the proper share of good roads and then take out all that is, uh, you know, because of rain, because of uh, traffic, because of all the things, whatever is left over is something that cannot be explained by, let's say, climate, by traffic. And that, that is how I measure corruption. So I, uh, reviewers may not like it yet. I, I have been working on it. Some do. And then I, I try to, it could be very creative. doesn't mean it's real, by the way. So I have to, at the end, research has to be real because it has to satisfy my curiosity. So then I have to actually compare with other measures of corruption or to talk to people and say, does it make sense? Does it make sense? So it could be creative, but I'm not writing a literature here, you know, or, or a poem. It's, so it has to be actual what is going on. So that second part is very important. We have the validity. I mean, there are a couple of things you mentioned. Uh, one is with the developments and empirical methodologies, obviously we are exploring different questions. We are moving in a different direction now. And uh, examples we gave, you, you can do a Shapley model and you can talk about some sort of a variance decomp decomposition. Uh, things that we didn't really think about maybe 20 years ago, 25 years ago, uh, these things didn't, uh, were there, but we didn't use them. We didn't have to, we didn't, we didn't resort to these things. So my question is, the things that are omitted in IB research, in strategy, international strategy research, um, things that, that, that are not developed enough, things that are omitted. It can be context, it can be variables, omitted variables, neglected elements, however you would like to call it, things that we should do more of in international strategy and IB. I think, uh... This is what I truly think. I think in the last uh, 30, 40 years, computing power has gone up a lot. So we all have computers which can do sophisticated models. And also there has been increasingly uh, institutionalization of our profession. So what it means is in order for us to get tenure, we need to have certain number of papers in certain types of papers and empirical papers are easier to publish than cases. Uh, or books, uh, or to, to get, to get, I mean, to get tenure. So in good universities, and what I think it has done is, it has. Um, it's very natural for me to spend more time in trying to get the data and run the regression without understanding the context. The problem with that is, I might be able to convince the reviewers, but I myself know this is not what really what it is. So I don't want that to happen. So in a way, we should understand the phenomena more than anyone else. Because to me, I would rather be 70% right than 100% wrong. So just because we have some kind of correlation because of what the computer shows, it's very easy to run regressions these days as we know. Uh, before, people used to write pieces a book there would be a chapter on, even before the literature, there would be a chapter on the context. Now, I think often uh, that is 
kind of afterthought. Uh, so at the end, so I would th- I would think the emphasis should always be on understanding the phenomena. And I would really, really encourage people not to run regressions quickly. That should be the last thing we should, we should do. Mm-hmm. I understand because I also have to publish, right? So we have our customers, but our first customer, my first customer should be me if I'm an academic. You see, it's a bit different from teacher. If I'm a teacher, which I am as an educator, my first customer as a teacher is not me. It's the person who is learning for me. It's not how much I teach. It's how much the person learns. But when it comes to research, it is driven by my own curiosity. Have I satisfied my curiosity? Can I say that I understand this better than when I started? Has it answered my question? If I haven't done it, I might have sold this to the um, reviewer, but I have lost my soul in the process. So to me, it is very important that we actually believe what we are doing. And that cannot happen if we don't spend more time understanding the basic data. Think about this way. When we were in high school students, it's not that we did not know how to do research, but our research would involve simple tables, would involve uh, non-parametric stuff like comparing means, we would know how to cut the data differently. You know, we, we, there are many things we can do before we start going into regression. And after regression, going into different fancy ways of doing identification. All of these things to me are necessary, but we're talking about between 90 to 95% level of confidence. What if I'm, I don't even believe that, that 90% that I, I, my results show are actually real. You know, so, so that kind of confidence, I think, is important. Thank you. About the next five to 10 years uh, of the field, some interesting research questions, uh, some venues to further uh, requires re- requiring attention. What do you think? You see, our field, I think, is moving more towards uh, disciplinary focus, uh, which I think is very different from how it started. I would say the same thing for strategy also. Interestingly, I I would, uh, I mean, this is to a large extent, it's natural as field becomes more established. But think about our role models in strategy or in economics or international business. Think about my role model would be Herbert Simon, people like Herbert Simon. these people, it's not that they didn't know, their work is truly interdisciplinary. It was disciplined, disciplined research, which by mean, uh, by, by discipline I mean rigorous. But at the same time, they had a question and they realized that disciplinary tools within certain discipline may not be enough to answer this question. So they actually used the discipline, interdisciplinary tools at the interface of multiple disciplines to come up with methodologies, come up with research designs to answer the questions that they had. So I I think uh, what we need is disciplined research. In the next few years, my fear is we will try to mimic what I would say this is what economics has been doing, mimicking physics to an extent. And at the expense of asking questions that are both meaningful and real. Uh, Now, how do you make the balance between going back to rigor and relevance? I think it goes back to, again, 
asking questions that we think are meaningful and convincing ourselves before trying to convince the re uh, reviewer. The problem is if we only convince ourselves, we'll be like Diogenes, you know, uh, but we are not going to uh, have a profession. So that's a challenge. How can we be a company person, institution person, but at the same time, a true scholar? Thank you. For, thank you. For the sake of time, I want to move to advice section, but I, uh, I, I'm going to build on something you said earlier about uh, you were interested in asking questions, but you didn't know how to write them. So what are some of the things that you wish you knew at the time, which would uh, save you a lot of time, efforts, pain, uh, agony? You know, I, uh, in international business, we sometimes talk about how firms in emerging markets move from OEM uh, when they just, like what Foxconn does, uh, to maybe... Uh, ODM, when you actually move beyond just manufacturing, you design it, but like giant does, or then uh, your own brand, you have your own brand. I think our research could be, uh, career could be seen in transition from OEM to ODM to ODM. As a PhD student, my suggestion would be somebody should try to follow, basically one should be an apprentice. Apprentice is one learns how to just copy a good piece of paper, replicate it in the perfect way possible from getting the good data to make sure. So, so then who decides who would be my role models? Maybe I can ask others and I can decide and think about, okay, these are the papers, these are the people I'd like to write, like them. So just follow, just copy that style. Can I just write a paper exactly like that if I had the data in a different context? So that's more like an OEM. Over time, what we should learn is, okay, because we are translating certain kind of research design in a different context, perhaps there's an opportunity for us to change the research design in a way to match the context better. That's when we, becomes, we are actually becoming uh, innovating on the design phase. If that happens by that stage, people would come and ask us, can we write papers with you? Then it becomes OBM. I have a brand name, but it doesn't happen overnight. And it's, there is no shortcut. So during the PhD program, one should try to follow in trying to be the best one can be as an apprentice. And so one should choose by, start by choosing the right mentor because one knows more than just the tools. You know, my, my advisor, FM Sherrod, if I have anything good as a researcher, the bad things are mine, but a lot of good things is thanks to him. He's the first person who told me, good techniques don't substitute, what did he say? Good techniques don't substitute for bad data. You know, he, he's, a, he's an economist, but he spent a lot of time trying to make sure the data he got was clean. And he was uh, scandalized when I was, as a PhD student, I said, I think I want to do my PhD on this with this data. And he said, really? I have spent so much time on this data and I know this is crap. So he, we sometimes don't think enough about the data we're getting, we take it for granted. Because we don't have time. Yeah, but... Uh... Sometimes students say, oh, it is too difficult to get data, too, too difficult to analyze it, too this, too that. 
And I say, like, if you don't do it, who will? Uh, this is the profession. You know, think about this way, uh, Ilgas. Somebody who joins a PhD program, let's say 25, we have maybe, if we are lucky, we live until 70. So, so we can work until 65. We are talking about long time. So if you see our career as a third year, fourth year thing, what is extra one year? Uh, but sometimes the, the system is we are optimizing on the short term and we are actually a suboptimal result in the long run. But I, it's not my fault. It's not their fault. It is because what it means to be an institution person. So anyway, I, I, I learned different things from my different mentors. So I was lucky. Who were who your mentors? Actually, uh, one of my uh, mentors just passed away. He was almost like an elder brother to me. Is um, um, Will Mitchell. You know, if, if somebody I have to say who played in such an important role in my career is uh, Professor Will Mitchell. And uh, what I've learned from is how to treat, how to treat colleagues and how to treat uh, students with respect and how to be how to be constantly engaged. So that's what I learned from him, to treating people with respect. And he's the one who said discipline research is important. So I learned that from him. I learned from Professor Scherer, my advisor, who is now 90 years old, is uh, understanding the phenomena, the data is very important. I learned from Turun Khanna, how important it is to, actually Turun is the one who, who in, who made me interested in the business group phenomena. The phenomena is very important. So differently, I learned from my, my grandfather how important it is to convince myself. So, you know, I, I learned different things from different people, I guess, like everybody else. What are some of the common mistakes that you see across uh, junior faculty or PhD students? Uh, Especially early in the, in the career. You know, the, the best thing in our profession is we have the capacity to meet people at their best. When people have, and when people are looking forward, something for the future, a lot of, uh, lot of hope. Hope brings the best of humans. Uh, so when I see our young faculty members uh, at NUS and others, I get really excited because they are, their mind is full of what they can do. So that actually makes me feel inspired. I'm inspired by looking at them. So, uh, so, so that's something I like. But when I see that they're, they're worried about tenure, it makes me sad because I want to tell them, look, you, when you did the PhD, you did the PhD because you liked what you were doing. You didn't do the PhD because you wanted to get a tenure in University X versus University Y. I don't know anybody who, who do not end up getting tenure. So you will get tenure. Don't be nervous. You will get tenure uh, in one place or the other. But don't, don't attach your self-worth based on having tenure in this school versus that school. Because very soon, uh, we are just going to be um, the same people we didn't want to be when we started doing our PhD. So anyway, this is, I'm, I'm, I'm very fortunate to be surrounded by people who have idealism. You know, without idealism, our field will not move. True. <clears throat> True. Uh, 
for the sake of time, uh, what's the question that I should have asked you but haven't? It's a difficult thing. Uh, maybe they're related. Maybe you could have asked me if I understood so much about good research, why have I not always done it myself? Uh, I think I'm trying to be true to myself, but you know, I'm also trying to, as I said, I, we, we have this pressure of fitting in because, uh, and institutions uh, demands and all these things. So one thing I have learned in very recently, which if I understood earlier, I would have done better. There was a long time I would, in my career, where I would basically fight against invisible enemies. The idea was, I wanna, I wanna seek truth. And how come people are asking me to uh, compromise? The institution is asking me to compromise. As I got slightly older, I found out that I was immature. I should give the institution what they want so that they leave me alone to do what I want. So this is what I have learned. So, but the question was, sometimes I had difficulty. I wish I understood this better. You know, you can't fight the system in a way. If they want certain things from you, do as best as you can. You know, I, I was watching the BBC program on the interview every year after the Nobel Prize winners, the interview Nobel Prize. You know, uh, I think it was last time was uh, Zainab Badawi, who was interviewing like physics, economics, chemistry, all these people in one room. And after they, they were talking about themselves, one of the audience, young assistant professor stood up and said, look, you could do this amazing work because in your time, you didn't have to write long grant letters, applications. You didn't have to have this tenure thing for within this time, you had to have write these papers. That's why you could spend five years working on one paper and eventually did very well or something like that. The answer that I heard changed the way I look at things. The chemistry professor answered, look, just because we were doing these exciting works. We didn't believe that people would have loved it. The ones that I loved, people didn't love it. The ones that I didn't like, sometimes people loved it. So the important thing is you have to give your paymasters the things that they need. You can't fight them because you need to you know, satisfy your body and soul. But then if you give them what they want, they'll leave you alone. Do what you want. So this is after I understood that, I realized that is true. I can write papers about the ones that can get published so that I can do other things, like the things that are very difficult to publish. But if I don't give people what they want, I wouldn't be given the opportunity that we have, which is actually a luxury in today's world. It is, you know, so we should appreciate that. True, true. These are... This was very helpful. This was very interesting. Thank you so much for your time, for your thoughts. Uh, I enjoyed it. I'm sure the audience will agree with me. Thank you, Pasha. Thank you so much, Ligas. Thank you. I appreciate it. Okay.